The GM Junior Show with Russ Landy and Rick Saratella is presented by Sports Management Worldwide, exclusively at NFLDraftScout.com. Welcome back. It's another edition of the GM Junior Show with Russ Landy. I am your co-host for today, RIC in a place to be, Rick Saratella, telling it like it is when it comes to the NFL draft since 2002. It's what we do. Go out and get it. The 2019 NFL Draft Bible now available exclusively on the NFLDraftScout.com. Up there in the menu bar, you can go and click it, find it, share it, like it, read it, get educated. And that's what our star of the show, Russ Landy, does here. Of course, presented by the Sports Management Worldwide folks. Check them out, SportsManagementWorldwide.com. We'll talk more about them in a second, but it is April 5th, 2019, 20 days away. Can you feel the draft fever creeping up? We can't even sleep. We're getting so antsy and nervous. We're going to talk about it today here on episode number four. It's the tight end and offensive line preview. If you're just tuning in for the first time, go find the archives. Check us out on Blog Talk Radio. We're on NFL Draft Scout, iTunes. We've done all the skill positions. Now we're going to get into my favorite, the big uglies. Of course, the tight ends too, but I love me some big uglies down in the trenches. We're going to talk about the O-line today. Next week, we'll be back to talk about the defensive line. But let's welcome in Russ Landy. Of course, you can follow him on Twitter at Russ Landy. Two decades of scouting experience with the Rams, Browns, Alouettes, of course, the original XFL, and of course, fresh off his trip from New York slash New Jersey. Russ, how are we doing today? I'm doing great. And, and that trip turned out to be awesome because I had this amazing guy, Rick, helping me out, getting me around all uh, the places <laughs> I needed to be. So I hadn't been to Iberia in about eight years. That used to be my stop with my mom and uh, dad going there to that place. So it was great to get through New York and catch up with big Rick in person. Yeah, great times. We navigated the uh, tolls, tunnels, and bridges. Uh, we did quite well for ourselves. And, uh, you know, those who take the sports management worldwide football GM and scouting courses do quite well for themselves, Russ, because I see these guys all over. Uh, you see guys that go on. You know, we were talking about a couple individuals who got on to the NFL and CFL. But, you know, I know we talk about the football and GM scouting course and Mark Dominic's also involved, but they also have other online courses. Uh, analytics has become a, a big thing now. And, our buddy Mike Tanier does a great job uh, at the sports management worldwide. Video editing is a hot button topic kind of, uh, you know, job in the industry now. Almost every college and every NFL team needs some kind of uh, video editing, video coordinating. I mean, this is now where the trend is becoming. So just talk a little bit about some of those classes that sports management worldwide has to offer. You know, it, it's really evolved. I mean, years ago when I started with them, 10 years ago, um, it was just football, GM, and scouting. And it was teaching the sort of the basics of how to scout and sort of some ideas on how to get into the business. But now you have Mike and Aaron teaching the uh, analytics course. Aaron uh, Schatz is sort of the, the innovator of all statistical analysis from Football Outsiders, founded the company. And then you have the, the video course is unbelievable. You have um, Mike Strobler from down at the Jacksonville Jaguars, been in the NFL over a decade. And the reality is, if you want to work in football, you're not going to get in initially through coaching and scouting usually. You're usually going to get in in another way. And one of the best ways is either through video or through sales. And this video course teaches you the basics of all the video systems that NFL teams use, and it gives you a chance to maybe intern. So what they offer at SMWW is unbelievable in terms of the variety of different things you can attack in terms of finding a way to learn to get a foot in the door. Yeah, Dr. Lynn and his uh, wife, Liz, they do a wonderful job there at the SMWW. Go check them out, sportsmanagementworldwide.com. Go check us out over at the NFLDraftScout.com. Get that NFL Draft Bible. We're just 20 days away, and today we're going to talk about some of those rankings on the tight end and offensive line, big board. There's a lot to get into, but let's pick the brain of one Russ Landy and you know, it seems like uh, the one thing I noticed watching the tight ends evolve over the years, and I think we got into it, you know, with the 
really Antonio Gates and, and, and Tony Gonzalez's of the world, these, you know, converted basketball players that made the tight end position into a pass catching threat. And then obviously, you know, Shannon Sharp was a guy who kind of evolved it, but there weren't a lot of guys like Shannon Sharp when he played. And then I think, you know, it's kind of um, populated now, Russ, where, you know, almost every good offense has a great pass catching tight end. And if you don't have one of these athletic uh, guys that can make plays and, you know, find the seam route and, and, uh, you know, create mismatches on, on the uh, offensive side of the ball, then you're not keeping up with the Joneses. But the one thing I've noticed now, watching these guys year after year, I mean, these guys don't want to block. And, you know, I'm wondering, you know, there's always going to be a home for a C.J. Conrad of Kentucky who can block, uh, even a Matt Sokol from Michigan State. They might not get drafted, but they can block. They're going to find a home at the next level. But I always wonder from a scout perspective russ what are some of the traits that you do look for especially from guys who aren't showing the effort i mean can you teach effort or is is blocking a coachable thing i mean how much do you weigh into the evaluation here you know i think you point out something really key here rick which is you can teach blocking there's no question you can teach technique you can teach the alignment where to be how to do it but it's really hard to teach it and to get a tight end to become a good blocker if they're not competitive. That's probably the biggest issue you have. I know, I remember back when I was at the Browns, um, the year Jeremy Shockey was coming out of school, and Jeremy was an elite receiving tight end. Um, And one of our scouts had really downgraded him because he said, well, he's not a real consistent blocker. He gets overpowered. He's not real big. And Butch Davis, our head coach at the time, said, hey, he said, Let's put the film on. So we watched the film, and the one thing you saw with Jeremy is, yeah, he got overpowered, and he got run over a lot, and he had no idea what he was doing. But every single play, he competed like it was the last thing ever, even on blocks. I mean, even when he was getting run over, he was grabbing, he was holding, he was doing whatever. What I've learned from Butch talking about it then through a lot of other people is, if your tight end is a very competitive blocker, even if he's bad, we can make him at least adequate. Because if he's competitive, it means he's going to try. So I can teach him the proper footwork. And if he's 225 or 235, I can get him to 255. I can improve his strength. But I can't make his effort better. That's very difficult to do, to improve a guy's effort. So to me, as long as I see the effort from an undersized tight end or a guy that's a bad blocker and maybe has the size, if I see the effort, I believe I can make him at least an adequate blocker. But if I don't see the effort the odds are very slim he's ever going to become good. Well, that's a great lead way into the next topic I want to talk about because we have never seen a pair of tight ends from the same team be selected together in the first round. And I think it's going to happen, Russ, because these two guys, uh, TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant, I mean, I don't see how they escape out of the first round. In fact, you know, I'll put T.J. Hawkinson up there against, you know, the past 18 years. I mean, this kid is arguably as good as it gets. I'm, I was thoroughly impressed with his film. And, you know, to your point, the effort with Noah Fant, you know, here's a guy, you know, I don't tune into to the Twitterverse often to see what other folks are saying, but when I do, I see them crushing this kid, Noah Fant, for his blocking but then I go and watch the film and I see how he's evolved from sophomore year to senior year and the effort, Russ, I mean, listen, yeah, he's not winning all the battles out there, but he's giving the effort, which tells me that he's willing to do what it takes. And I agree with you, as long as you have the effort and you're willing, it's like teaching defense in the NBA. If you're willing to do it, you can do it. So I see that with Noah Fant. Now, is he as good of a blocker as TJ Hawkinson? No. But, man, he put out some impressive measurables at the Combine where I felt like, hey, he was kind of on, you know, that that cut borderline first-round pick. And we talked about it on previous shows. Hey, he goes through the process, checks off all the boxes. To me, you know, he did enough to warrant a first-round pick. Hawkinson, I wouldn't be surprised if he goes into the top ten. I'm curious as to what you're hearing from your sources around the league. You know, I mean, I think there's a split. Some teams really say, you know what, I know that Hawkinson's a better player now, but the ceiling for Fant is higher. 
So some teams, I think, are leaning that way because I think they view him as a guy athletically who's a, a step above Hawkinson. He's a little more quick twitch, a little faster. And as a receiver, he has a chance, if he gets better catching the ball, to really be an impact dynamic guy. Then there's the other group, which I think there's more of, which say, you know what, yeah, Hawkinson may not be dynamic like Fant, but he's a good athlete, runs good routes, he knows what he's doing, and he's already a very good blocker with a chance to become a dominant one in the NFL. So I think most teams probably have, I shouldn't say most teams probably have, it's going to be based on what your team wants. If you're a team like San Diego, who's had a guy like Gates and now Hunter Henry, and you never ask him to block, you're going to have Fant higher than you are Hawkinson. But if you're a team like the bulk of teams in the NFL now, who, yeah, we want a guy who can be a receiving threat, but we also do need a little bit of physicality, Hawkinson's going to be higher on the board for teams like the Giants and the Jaguars and probably the uh, 49ers. Hawkinson might have a little bit more value, but both of these guys, to me, they're both high-end elite prospects. And I think what you also have to remember is the NFL, they, they know what they're doing in terms of scouting, and they know what certain positions at certain schools you do not play at Iowa as a tight end if you are not a willing blocker. doesn't mean you're a great blocker, but uh, they, their staff there from Coach Ferentz on down, they know they're not going to put a tight end in that offense, which requires a lot of blocking, both positional, in line, on the move. They're not going to put a guy on the field at tight end who's not willing to block. So NFL teams know with Fant and Hawkinson that, yeah, there are issues, but we know the effort and the character is there. Now we just have to work with them to work on technique, especially Fant, to become a better blocker. But both these guys, I think, have a chance to be very productive starters in the NFL. Well, that's interesting because if Fant comes off the board first and Hawkinson you know, starts to slide a little bit, I know the, the Patriots usually like to trade back but they have so many picks to work with. I wonder at what point do they consider maybe sliding up a little bit to, to nab Hawkinson because, boy, you know, you're, let's be honest, Gronk's a Hall of Famer. You're not going to fill those shoes. But a guy like Hawkinson would be as good as it gets in terms of a potential uh, replacement for Gronkowski. So something to keep an eye on there. Now, you know, I'm looking at some of these tight ends, Russ. Uh, you mentioned the Iowa tight ends. You know, it seems like every year Notre Dame, I forget the crazy statistic, but I mean, going back at least 20 years now, I mean, I want to say all the way back to Anthony Fasano, that was only 12 years ago, even further than that. They've always had a tight end selected in the draft. It, uh, you know, it's crazy. Um, you know, you, you think about that lineage. So a guy like Alizé Mack, where, you know, there's been some issues there, uh, Coming out of Las Vegas, he didn't have the greatest reputation playing at Bishop Gorman. Goes on to Notre Dame, you know, has all the athletic talent in the world, but, you know, commits to the senior ball, but then, you know, couldn't graduate in time and then, you know, had, had some academic issues. So a guy like that, I think he still gets drafted, but maybe a day three. Um, Kylie Waring from San Diego State, these are the stories I love. And, you know, he was a kind of a guy that came onto my radar late in the season, and he's a late bloomer. And I'd love to get your opinion on this because here's a guy, Russ, now very new to the position. Uh, his high school, we talked about this. If you guys listened to the Rick and Joe NFL draft show, we talked about this kid was playing goalie for the water polo team his senior year of high school. The football coach finds him and says, Hey, why don't you give the gridiron a shot, they throw him in at tight end. So, you know, he had just one year of experience playing football at the high school level in his life. Now he goes on and kind of, you know, mold, you know, morphs into this six foot five, 250 athletic specimen. Now he also played soccer in high school. He was a basketball standout. So he did it all. Now he goes and blows up the combine four, six, seven. He's jumping through the gymnasium you know, maybe not a day one, day two uh, selection here, Russ, but I love what you said earlier in one of our earlier episodes was a, a, a lesson that you learned in the war room. When you get to day three, why not roll a dice with players who have upside? And I think this is the kind of guy that fits that criteria and mold. I think you're 100% right. You know, he and a kid that I also think is very similar is the Josh Oliver kid from San Jose State. I mean, these are both yes. athletic kids. They can run. 
They can catch. Um, they're raw. I mean, especially Warren. When you watch this kid, you don't see always the right foot. The route's not always exactly how you want it. But both of these kids athletically are starting NFL tight end athletes. Now, can they develop the football to catch up with them? I think there's a possibility for both of them. I mean, Warring is a guy that, like you talked about, virtually no experience. One-year high school, developed throughout college. This kid's got a chance athletically to make it. I think when you look at Oliver, this is a kid I had not seen much of until I went down to the All-Star Games, and he crushed it. He had a great week. I, I think it was down at the Senior Bowl, and he caught the heck out of the ball, looked fantastic. And to me, those are two guys that you look at, and if you were to say, yeah, the blocking, the, the, the actual route running, and all the different truths, like where are you going to give them a high grade or a low grade if they're going to play right away, it'd probably be low. But when you get into the athleticism area, and you start grading them compared to other guys that are currently in the league, these guys grade higher than a lot of those guys. That's what gives you hope is, hey, if you have a tight ends coach who's very good at teaching the fundamentals, teaching the guys the proper footwork, hand use, all those things, these are the types of guys you take on day three, even as high as the fourth round, I think, that have a chance to really blossom when they get in the NFL with good coaching. So I agree with that, and I'll throw you another name at you. He's not the same athlete as them. But another guy I think is sort of being overlooked was at the Senior Bowl is the Trevon Wesco kid from West Virginia. This I was kid just to me is sort of the opposite. Yeah. You know, he, he's not the same guy. Obviously, he's a 4'9 guy. He's never going to run away from people. But I think at the Senior Bowl, he showed, you know what, I'm not a slug. I can move. I'm a smooth athlete, very good hands, a dominant blocker most of the time. At times, he gets a little out of control as a blocker. But I think what gets you excited if you're an NFL team, and this isn't a guy you have to take until the fourth or fifth round, is you bring him in, you say, okay, you're going to be our tight end. You're going to, we're going to try to make you a starter, but maybe you're going to be our number two. But if after a year or two you say, you know what, we realize he just can't get away from people, you look at him and you say, you know what, he's 6'4", he's 267, runs in the 4'9 area, he's got 34 and three-quarter arms. You know what? Mm -hmm. This might be a guy that we put 30 pounds on and try him as a tackle guard guy. So that, to me, there's a lot of value in Wesco because even if he doesn't make it as a tight end, he can be a possible O-line conversion, or he could be your third tight end, your emergency tackle type guy because there's potential there with weight. He's a guy that jumped out on film when I graded Will Greer. This kid's got something special to him. I think he's going to have a long career in the NFL. I, I don't agree. know if he'll ever be a starter, but he'll be in the league eight or ten years. No, this I, I believe this is a luxury piece. If you're a contending team and you're looking for a luxury addition to the offense to kind of take that next step, I agree with you. He jumped out to me at the Senior Bowl, and we saw that at West Virginia. They, re they really didn't know what to do with him the first three years. He was kind of just bouncing around, like you said, in between positions. They said, hey, why don't we get this guy out in, the, in open space, throw him the ball a little bit. I think he had like 27 catches, I, one catch coming into the season. So they, they featured him in the passing game, and I thought he did very well. And I would like to see him continue in that role. And I think he can be a guy that, you know, he's maybe out there 20 plays a game. Maybe he comes in on red zone and special packages and, and, and uh, those goal line, you know, packages where, you know, you have to account for him. And now, hey, is he, are they using him in line? Are they lining him as the receiver? Keep an eye on Wesco. Uh, that's a guy to me, you know, he came out with a fourth round grade in the draft Bible. I'd have no problem even taking him in a third if I had the draft equity to mess around with. Now, if I'm a, if I'm a you know, rebuilding phase, Maybe I can't afford to use a top 100 selection, but if I'm the Patriots, and I hate to keep using them as an example, but they're always good and they always have a lot of draft picks. But you know, that's a guy. Hey, maybe I roll the dice a little bit earlier just to assure myself that I get him um, because I think he's you know 270 pounds. He's built low to the ground. He's a stocky individual. He gains. A, he ain't straight. You know, on on paper he's not fast but he gets a full steam ahead. Then, you know, you, you get what, you know, people start calling business decisions. Hey, is the safety going to want to step in there and, and really put his head down one-on-one -on -one with a guy like that? So, you know, I like... And I'll give West you two Green. other teams, Rick, that, I, that yeah. I think, because you mentioned the Patriots. How about Giants? They just took Saquon yeah. Barkley second last year. They want Eli to be the guy at least for another year or two. Imagine this guy being your guy on the edge to be able to help Barkley get the corner. He can come across mm -hmm. and wham guys, 
and he's athletic enough to catch some little quick check down passes. And then you look at Jacksonville. I mean, they're running a similar offense to what the Giants are doing. They want to run the ball, sure. control the clock. And even with Nick Foles coming there, they're still going to be a physical team throwing the ball. They're going to do that, but they're going to want to run it. They've got Fournette. This guy would help them as a blocking tight end. So I think the Patriots, Giants, and Jags are three teams to keep an eye out for for Wesco. Great point. Great point, especially with the Giants, because I don't know if Red Ellison, I believe he's a free agent. He kind of played that role last year. I'm not, I heard he might not be coming back. So Wesco to me would actually be an upgrade. Then you factor in the durability concerns they had with Ingram the last couple of years. Hey, Ingram goes down. Here's a guy. Now he's got some pass catching ability. You can kind of slide him in there, hold down the fort if that happens again. So, um, two last guys I'll throw out there, Russ Drew sample from Washington. We saw Will Disley come out, uh, in the fourth or fifth round. I think sample is just as good, if not better, which is why he earned a third-round grade on my board. And then Foster Moreau uh, from LSU had a chance to watch this kid work out in Jersey at the Tusk Football Academy. And, you know, his reputation precedes himself uh, in terms of the work ethic. That, that famous number 18 that he wore at LSU, well, he backed it up. First one in the building, last one to leave. I mean, I'm there, you know, uh, practice doesn't start at 9. I'm showing up at 7 a.m., uh, to meet them for a business meeting. Hey, Foster Moreau's in the building, hanging out with the family. You know, he's there. This guy doesn't leave the building. So uh, I think, you know, when you can get a guy like that in your locker room on day three, especially, uh, there's value to that. So, you know. No question. I and think you know, we'll, the, the sample kid jumped out when I looked at Jake Browning. Sample made a lot of plays. He's an intriguing kid because he's not a blazer, but he's a good athlete. Yep. He can catch the ball. And the Moreau kid, I mean, it's sort of in the genes. I mean, his brother. Um, the, the corner. This kid is an athletic kid. He's got some traits to him that tell me, hey, he could be better than what people think once he gets in the NFL. There's something about the kid when you watch him athletically at LSU, going against some of the yeah. top athletes in the country. He does some things that not many guys can do. So I agree with you. I mean, you, you talk late, a, a guy that's a locker room guy who's athletic enough to maybe develop into a starter. There's something to take a gamble on with Moreau, and I think he's going to go in that fourth to fifth round area. Yeah, and, you know, listen, one last point I'll tell you. I like the personality, too. It's not a cocky arrogant. It's just the confidence about him and the mentality. I mean, I remember his interview at the podium at the Combine, and I'm walking by, and one of the reporters asked him about his blocking, and, you know, he said something to the effect just like, you know, when I get done with him, like he's going to have to pick up his blood and guts off the floor, and it's just like, all right, you know, that's, that's the kind of mentality that I like my players to have. So with that, we'll move on to the off. Anybody else you want to talk about tight end-wise, or can we move it over to no, the O-line? we can move it over. That's a, those are the only guys that really jumped out after that initial group that we talked about, although I will say – both of us have been sort of remiss is that Irv Smith is a pretty good tight end himself. Um, sure, he's no, going to be a very productive player. He's just not a big kid. He's a 6'2", right. 240 guy, but he catches the ball well. He's athletic. I mean, I don't, I don't want to leave him out because athletically he's right there with the guys like Fant and Hawkinson. I mean, he's going to be a productive player in the NFL. I'm not sure what role he's going to play, whether it's H-back or tight end, but he's going to catch a lot of balls in the NFL. Yeah, I could see him in a Jordan Reed type of role. You know, I, I think that's the Redskins tight end that, you know, when healthy uh, is an effective player. So, you know, uh, maybe in that H-back slot, you know, move around type of situation. You know, I will say I got, you know, I got talked up moving Jay Sternberger up the board, number four in in the draft Bible publication. My staff a little bit higher on him than I am, but hey. You know, we, we we go with the consensus here, and and I listen to smart people. So uh, Dawson Knox was a guy who just ran an impressive 40 at his pro day. So he created a little bit of buzz. I will say Caden Smith from Stanford, you want a polished tight end, uh, can do a little bit of everything well. You know, jack of all traits, master of none, if you want to go there, sure. But, you know, dual threat capabilities when you talk about pass catching and blocking – um, Caleb Wilson, a late uh, senior bowl arrival, you know, didn't do too well at the senior bowl, did do very well at the combine, including a four, five, six, 40 yard dash at 240 pounds. Um, Thomas Sweeney, of course, rounding out some of the tight ends we did not talk about. Now you're tuned into the GM junior show with Russ land. 
Rick Zaratella, presented by Sports Management Worldwide. Check them out over at the sportsmanagementworldwide.com. They've got several online courses, eight weeks. You get a degree if you're interested in being an agent. Uh, we didn't mention the Joel Corey uh, salary cap course. Uh, if you want to break into the football industry, this is where it's at. Their football conference, you know, Russ and myself have had uh, the honor to speak on the panel the last couple of years together. So that's always a lot of fun. The networking is invaluable. Uh, so please go check out our friends at sportsmanagementworldwide.com. And now it's time for a little O-line talk, baby. The big uglies. And Russ, I don't know about you, but when I uh, you know, make my journeys across the country to the various all-star circuits and events, the best part, my most favorite is the one-on-ones with the O-line and D-line. I think that's really where guys can separate themselves in the trenches, mano a mano, FCS, FBS, D2, D3. I don't care where you hail from. We find out we separate the men from the boys, don't we? Oh, there's no question. I mean, the O-line, I mean, even with all the passing and everybody talking about you need receivers, you need quarterbacks, it, you still have to have a strong O-line. If you look at the teams that are winning year after year, it's the teams that can protect the quarterback. Now, you may not need the great run blockers like there used to be 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, but if you don't have O-linemen, especially tackles and guards, who can handle that pass protection one-on-one and be able to slide and protect, you're really going to struggle as a team because you have to give your quarterback time. You have to give him a clean pocket to work from. That's one of the, to me, the entire keys of the Patriots' success over the past 15 years is they've done a great job of identifying players. They may not be the best offensive linemen, but what they're good at is they allow a clean pocket. They may not be as big or strong or whatever, but they know their jobs, they're very smart, and they give Brady a clean pocket. And if you can do that, You've got a chance. So O-line, tremendously important. I mean, outside of quarterbacks, pass rushers, and corners, there's nothing to me more important than finding good O-linemen. Yeah, you know, obviously you need a quarterback to make it all work. But to me, I've always been a, a, a huge proponent of building from the inside out. And what does that mean? Hey, you find your blindside protector, that's a cornerstone. Hey, you find your pass rusher on the defense, that's a cornerstone. Hey, you beef up the middle because if you can – win the game of inches and you know to your point what you said russ might be even more truer and a little bit more you know disappointing to someone who's more old school like myself but you you said you don't need those prototypical run mallers anymore and that's because hey it's called the andy reed effect is what i like to call it. the nfl has become this wide open spread attack 70 percent of the plays now i believe are, are passed which is mind-blowing to me but I think it's a trickle down, you know, usually the NFL trickles down to the other leagues, but I think it's a trickle over from the college game. And you see these uh, influx of up-tempo, you know, spread offenses, guys, you know, they're, they're looking over to the sideline. What's flash card says, you know, will it line up, uh, you know, two point stance. Hey, let's go, go, go. And I feel like a lot of the fundamentals and techniques now are not being taught at the collegiate level because, Hey, at the end of the day, it's not the college O-line coach to, to prep their players for the next level. It's their jobs to win football games. And if that calls for playing a no-huddle, you know, up-tempo uh, type of offense where we're going to try to gas the opposing team, well then, hey, the technique aspect, the fundamentals, the football one-on-one, I feel like we, you know, everywhere I go, whether it's a football camp, a tryout, a workout, NFL, XFL, CFL, it doesn't matter. Everybody says, you know what? We need more O-linemen. I mean, I can tell you, having worked in the CFL the last six years, if you think it's, there, there are no offensive tackles. We searched and scoured, and if a kid is 6'4 and taller and has a pulse and can walk and chew gum at the same time, he's going to get <laughs> opportunity after opportunity in the NFL. We couldn't find him. We had to pick guys off the heap that either were older, had been in trouble off the field so the NFL wouldn't give him a shot, or they just weren't really good players. They were really bad players, but we had to get them up there and find somebody. It is impossible to find good offensive tackles. Um, and I will say, in today's NFL, we sort of overlooked it. We talked about guards and tackles. But because of the amount of passing and all the defensive checks and changes that go on, the center, he may not have to be a dominant physical guy, 
but mentally he's got to be unbelievably smart because he and that quarterback, every single snap, they have to not only identify the Mac correctly, but they have to identify the defense and make the correct protection calls, and they have to be in sync because if they're not in sync, that offense has zero chance. And a lot of time when that quarterback's back on the shotgun, he may initially make a check call at the line of scrimmage, and then when he backs up to the shotgun, he's making changes. And that center has to understand without hearing the quarterback, hey, we're seeing this guy shift. I'm reading it just like the quarterback. We need to shift our protection and change this. So we, we also don't want to forget about the centers. Their importance is so vital nowadays in today's NFL. If you don't have a smart center, your chances of success are very low. No, no doubt about it. Some great uh, points there. Russ Landy, Rick Saratella breaking down offensive linemen. Since we're talking about the evaluation of the position and you delved into the interior, one thing I did want to touch base on, Russ, is just, you know, especially the guard position. And you know what? I feel like there's some pretty good centers in this year's class. Like, I like the the Bradbury kid from NC State. I love his athleticism and, and upside. Uh, the kid from Mississippi State, Elton Jenkins, I think, you know, is one of the safer players in, in this year's draft. Now, he's he's not going to go to the Pro Bowl uh, every year, but you know what? He's going to be a solid starter, in my opinion. Uh, the junior from A&M, McCoy, uh, the scouts I've spoken to speak very highly of him. You got the Kansas State kid, Dalton Risner, Reisner. Uh, some people like him as guards. Other people like him as center. I just like him on my team. Of course, he played tackle at Kansas State. But really what I wanted to focus on, maybe more so at the guard position than the center position, it seems like both of them do get devalued, but especially guard. And I, and I, I, I remember for a little bit there, there was some guards going pretty high in the draft. I think uh, at least half of them didn't pan out. So teams have been, feels like a little bit more gun-shy when it comes to pulling the trigger on an offensive guard in the first round. And I'm curious to know, you know, what contributes to that? Have you noticed that? To me, I've always felt like, hey, I don't personally value a guard like a tackle because a lot of these guys are just failed tackles that get kicked inside. Do you agree, disagree? What's your take on that? You know, it's a really great discussion because I think if you talk to a lot of NFL teams, they'll tell you in today's NFL, the guards may be as important as the tackles because with analytics, teams are realizing that inside pressure gets to the quarterback faster than outside pressure, so you have to stop that. That's one of the things the Patriots did for a number of years is they focused on the centers and guards, making sure they were stout guys, even if they weren't great athletes. But the issue is you need a tackle, you need a better athlete than you do at guard or center. And they're harder to find. Those elite guys athletically, so teams will take them in the first round, whereas a guard, even the really good ones, say in this draft, if you look at the Lindstrom kid from BC or the Drew Samaya kid from Oklahoma, they're very good. These guys are going to probably start for five to ten years in the league, but they're not at the same level athletically in terms of agility and side-to-side sliding ability as some of the top tackles. So you feel, you know what, I can get a guy who's a good enough athlete who's tough and hard-nosed, I can get that guy in the second or third round because I can't get the elite athlete for tackle at that point. And the funny thing is, while tackles have to be better athletes in terms of athleticism, adjustability, centers and guards have to actually be a little bit quicker because the guys are on top of them so fast. And it's one of the mistakes that you see a lot of media people make as they talk about the tackle has to be super quick with his feet. Tackle doesn't have to be great with his feet in terms of quickness. He has to be great in terms of staying over his feet, bending his knees, and being able to adjust side to side because he's got to protect inside and outside. Guards and centers, if a guard can get off his feet, get set fast, and get his hands out there, he doesn't have to worry that much about going side to side. He's got to worry about that really quick guy off the ball. So that's why guards are a little devalued. They don't have to be elite athletes so you can get away with a guy that might not be a good athlete. It might be just average. Whereas a tackle, you have to be an athlete to protect that, that spot, even though a guard may be more important to your offense. No, great points. Uh, very valid stuff there. And, you know, to your point, you know, if you're watching at home and, and you tuned into the combine and you see the, the old linemen doing the mirror drills, you know, they're dancing back and forth, you know, that's to – to see their lateral quickness, you know, can they, can they play on that Island? And that's what separates, 
you know, those tackles and what makes some of those tackles a guard and a guy like Cody Ford comes to mind at Oklahoma where, you know, I think, you know, he played tackle there at Oklahoma. I think your skill set, uh, skill set translates better to guard, but kind of like uh, Deion Dawkins coming out of temple a couple of years ago, I think, Hey, try him out at tackle. If he does well and doesn't succeed, well then, Hey, he, you can kick him up, kick him inside and you'll have a pretty good guard too. So, um, we talked about some of these interior guys, Russ, but you know, the glitz and the glamour, so to speak from this year's draft class resides at that offensive tackle position. And, you know, kind of took a little bit of time, I would say for this year's draft class to come into focus. And it wasn't exactly clear as to who would be the top offensive tackle. And I'm not really quite sure we still have a consensus offensive tackle. I do think Jonah Williams from Alabama has been in that conversation uh, from the start of the season. He, along with Greg Little from Ole Miss, who has kind of taken a hit now, I think, as we get closer and gone through the process, uh, being questioned maybe for his toughness, being labeled as a more finesse guy. Well, since then, uh, you know, players such as Andre Dillard and Jawan Tyler have uh, increased their draft stock. And I think, you know, depending on who you talk to and, uh, you know, different teams, what you need. It seems like, you know, you ask 10 different scouts who their top tackle prospect is, you might get four different answers. And I think Dillard from Washington State is in that conversation due to, again, the upside and athleticism, whereas Taylor, hey, he's just been a pretty consistent player there at Florida, uh, really uh, has molded his body into a lean specimen uh you know what a transition coming out of high school 350 pounds to a now lean 300 uh plus you know low 300 range but i'm curious you know how do you weigh this year's offensive tackle class what are you hearing is there a consensus will there be a consensus or will it really just depend on which team decides to choose a tackle first you know, everything I've heard is that there isn't a consensus. I mean, some teams love Williams. Some teams think of him, and, yeah, he's not perfect in terms of he's only 6'4 and change. Obviously, teams prefer a 6'5 guy and above. But when you look at him, he's athletic. He can bend his knees. He can do all the things you want to tackle to do. And he shows it on the field pretty consistently. Um, other people love Dillard because of what he could be. Because when you watch Dillard, about half the time, he bends his knees. He plays with good base. Looks like a superstar. About the other half of the time, he plays straight-legged, he's upright, and when he's upright, he actually looks like a bad athlete. Can't change directions, gets beaten too often, um, and it's a little frustrating because talent-wise, there's no question he's a good enough athlete to be a long-time starter at left tackle in the NFL. Um, it, it's one of those things I think teams, some teams might be more comfortable, even though Dillard weighed more at the combine. I think teams feel that Williams has a little bit more inert power and strength um, I will say there are some other guys that are going to be in the mix. They may not be in the mix, like you mentioned, Dewan Taylor, to be the first tackle, but they're going to be in that discussion to be the second or third guy. And the, and the other guy, I would say, you, you mentioned Taylor Little from Mississippi, tremendous athlete, a little bit raw. The kid from Washington, McGleary, interesting kid. Yeah. I also think the Caduce kid from West Virginia, don't be shocked if he ends up getting picked above some of these guys. I know there are a lot of NFL people that feel he's one of the top athletes in the draft at his position and that he's got a chance to be a very special tackle. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if he ends up as the second or third tackle off the board. Um, I've heard a lot of NFL teams saying that if this kid can get it together, he could be a front-line guy for a long time. He's athletic. He can bend his knees. The issue is more so than Dillard, where Dillard – is inconsistent and plays high. Could you, you might see him do it right one out of five times, and that's what drives you nuts. You're like, oh, he could be so great. Why doesn't you do it every single snap? Well, you know, while you were talking, and I'm a big fan of Kajus because I love his size, speed, athleticism. Uh, I happen to just catch this. Otherwise, I would have not known myself. And shout out uh, to Pat Trainer, who I frequent her podcast, quite frequently locked on giants podcast. I think it might've been two or three days ago. I actually saw her tweet out Kajus underwent a uh, quad muscle surgery of some sort. He's now going to be out for three months. So I'm going to put you on yeah. the spot here, Russ three months, 
out of the equation should still be healthy enough for training camp, does that impact your evaluation now? Well, it impacts your evaluation in terms of if we need a guy right away. Um, but if you're a team that feels you're, hey, we're, we're not, we're ne- you should never, in my opinion, be drafting your first-round pick saying we're drafting him because we need him to play this year. Because half the first-round picks don't contribute as rookies. And if you're expecting a first-round pick to be the solution to get you from a bad team to a good team, that's a mistake. I think the bigger thing here is you have to trust your trainers and your medical people. I'm sure they've gotten all the records from the surgery that was done, from the injury that took place. They're probably, I'm sure he was a guy that is going to get invited back probably actually in the next week for the uh, second look at the NFL Combine. They bring guys back for medical rechecks. He's going to be one of those guys. If your trainers come out of it saying, you know what, this guy's fine, that we feel that three months, four months, as long as we take our time and don't rush him, he'll be 100%. I don't think it's going to dramatically affect his draft stock. And it could be something where it really benefits one of those teams that has been winning, they don't feel the pressure that they have to go get a guy that's going to instantly come in. So if you're looking at the latter part of the first round, like I mentioned, I think he's going to go higher than people think. If you're a Patriots or a Chargers, one of those teams that the coach isn't getting fired next year no matter what. Um, and you, you think, hey, we could get a guy here that really might have been a top 15 pick if he were healthy. We could get him here or at the top of the second round. That's where I think he could fall because as long as your medical people, and this is the real question, feel that he will be 100% and there will be no long-term issues with this, and it's just a matter of being patient and allowing him to rehab to get to 100% without rushing it, then I don't think you allow this to affect his draft, stru- draft start- stock dramatically. I can say that. <laughs> we got him twisted up. He's Russ Land. I'm Rick Saratella. You know, another guy or another team that comes to mind, you know, would be the Eagles because you take a look at uh, Jason Peters there, their left tackle. He's entering his final year of the contract. He'll be 38 years old. I think he struggled with some nagging injuries last year. So, hey, if I can get a guy like Kajos, uh second, third round, and like you said, and not have to even play him this year. He learned, you know, he just watches Peters for a year and then steps in. Uh, that's how the, the good teams, you know, construct a franchise. And you're right. You know, if you're depending on the rookies to be the solution to, to your problems, yeah, do they help, you know, plug some holes and, and shore up some areas of need and help extinguish some fires? Absolutely. Uh, but it, it, it's a process, right? That, that, that old good old uh, saying, trust the process. It's a process to constructing a team. So with that being said, Russ, we're winding down. Um, you know, I'm curious to know, you mentioned Caleb McGarry. I thought he had an outstanding senior bowl. The other guy that stood out to me was uh, this kid out of USC, the Chuma Idoga. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you had a chance to see him, but I was really impressed talk about the lateral movement and ability to play on the island. I thought he was one kid who really impressed in the one-on-ones. Yeah, he definitely did. I mean, athletically, he stood out there, and you came away, at least I did, saying, you know what, there are issues when you watch film. There's a little bit of inconsistency. But if we're talking about athletic guys to play the tackle position at the NFL, there are a lot of guys who really are good college players. But when you look at them athletically, you say, no. But when you look at this kid, you say, yup. The athleticism is 100% there, and if we can coach some of the just technique mistakes, get him to be a little bit more consistent maintaining his focus, we could have a guy that athletically is right up there with any of the tackles in this draft. Those are the guys, to me, that are on day three of the draft, maybe day two, are really worth a gamble. And I'm going to throw one name out at you. This is a crazy one, because I saw him at the East-West game, and he was bad at the East-West game, so he's not a guy you even consider drafting, but there's a kid named Tyree St. Louis at the University of Miami. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Athletically, he's right there with any tackle in this draft. He can move his feet. He's nimble. He's athletic. Now, the people at Miami don't know if he's ever the light's ever going to go on, but they say athletically there's nobody on their team on that plays O-line that's even close to this kid. At the East-West game, it was clear athletically he was by far and away the best lineman. As a producer, he was probably the worst of all the linemen at the East-West. But if you're talking undrafted free agent, a guy can take, bring the training camp and maybe put on the practice roster for a year to see if we can figure out how to make the light go on, he's an intriguing guy late. 
that I'd love to take a shot on as an undrafted free agent. Well, you know, you talked about that size earlier in the segment. I mean, here's a kid, uh, six foot four and seven eighths, so six foot five essentially. But what stands out to me, almost an 85 inch wingspan. I mean, he's got some great length on him. I mean, that's about as big as a wing wingspan as anybody. I think Greg Little is 85 on the button. Uh, but other than that, this guy's got some incredibly long arms um, and great size on him. So that's definitely a guy I'm going to make note of. A couple other guys I made note of at the East-West Ryan game actually was Trey Pipkins out of Sioux Falls. And, 100%. Uh, he did a good job. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I loved what I saw out of Trey Pipkins. And then not so much, you know, well – Here's here's what's funny. I loved what I saw from uh, the Elon kid at the East West Shrine game, and then he got called up to the Senior Bowl, and I said, ah, well, I don't love him not so much. So that was that goes to show the difference of level of competition. Which brings me to my last question of the podcast, Russ. Um, you know, personal experience here. We hear so much about the small schools and the FCS D two D three. We saw Ali Marpet a couple years ago and what a great story it was, but it, it seems like traditionally and historically most teams, not all, but most teams from my understanding, if they're, you know, comparing two prospects have two evenly matched and rated prospects nine times out of 10, they're going to go with that big school pedigree over the small school name. Uh, would you concur? What's your experience been like? Can you relate a personal story? Well, firstly, there's no question. I mean, if the players are equal athletically and the character and everything is equal, teams are going to lean towards the bigger school guy just because of who they've gone against, what they've had to deal with, um, being a professional. Um, and there, and there, the reality is there's a, fail, a high failure rate when you're talking small school guys that get drafted as offensive linemen. I'm not saying all positions, but offensive linemen because oftentimes – they are literally blocking guys who are all going into accounting and business management that are never going to step foot on a professional field. And they're, they're great athletes, but they need a lot of work. Um, and and, right. and this works both ways because there's a kid, and for some reason his name is slipping in my mind now, who was a starting left tackle in the league. I think he's with Arizona now. Came out of Hillsdale College about 10 years ago. Um, really athletic mm. kid. Went in the third round. And I remember watching his film, and you could see he was a dancing bear, but every game he would get beat for one or two hits on the quarterback. And I was just like, my gosh, what is the deal with this kid? And I didn't like him. I gave him a late-round grade. He ends up going to third round. He started like seven or eight years in the league, earned a lot of money. It's very difficult with small school guys because you don't know how are they going to be intrinsically motivated when all of a sudden they're going against guys that are so much better than them. Now, those all-star games can help a little bit because it's not so much whether they win or lose the battles in the one-on-ones. Most of the time, they're just going to get destroyed because they're from a small school. They've never dealt with somebody like this. But how do they respond? I've seen some small school guys go, and that first snap, they just get hit, and it's over. They get beat one time, and it's over. Whereas a great example of a small school guy coming down to the U.S., um, we have Laurent Duvernay-Tardif from McGill University Mm -hmm. in Canada. Came down to the East-West game, great-looking prospect. First snap, they had him at right tackle. Instantly, guy whipped him, just blew right by him. He didn't allow another guy to beat him in one-on-ones or team the whole rest of the week because he took it. You could see instantly he was really mad he got beat. Every snap thereafter, he came back. He was going to fight a guy to the death. I mean, he was tripping guys. He was grabbing guys' face masks, whatever it took. So even though there were other instances while he was out there where he was beaten, quote-unquote, because the guy got past him, he would trip him, he would grab him, that tells you as a scout, hey, we've seen he can move his feet. Now we know he's got that innate competitiveness to handle the jump. And that's one of the important things. You have to have a mentally tough kid because those small school kids are going to get their ass handed to them the first (laughs) probably year in the NFL and practice and stuff like that. And you've got to have a kid who's mentally tough, who can get beaten and beaten and beaten and then recover to become a good lineman. So it's tough. Small school linemen, you usually get guys who there's a reason they're at a small school, either they were undersized or lacked the grades. And you got to figure out, do they have the mental fortitude to overcome the fact that now they're going to be going against elite talent every single snap the rest of their career? Yeah, you know, it's uh, 
definitely a lot of a lot of great follow-up points that i wanted wanted to make there but you know we're getting down to the nitty-gritty um i love what russ is, is talking about man i wish we had another half hour 45 minutes to chat but you know dr laurent DeVernay tardif i should say he yeah, went and got right? his uh <laughs> and uh the the previous hillsdale jared veldier from Hillsdale, yes, third Veldier. round pick. Yep. Yes. <laughs> well, I can tell so. you, the first year I was with the Alouettes, the first game I scouted live was McGill. And after I saw McGill and saw Tardif, I texted everybody in the NFL, and I said, get your passports ready. You need to get to McGill this year, because I just saw a starting <laughs> NFL lineman playing for McGill University, because he was a rock in, star. Indeed. Indeed. All right, Russ. Well, you know, we're going to uh, put a bow on this episode here. 20 days away from the NFL draft. Give us a little quick peek, you know, 60 seconds or less. What an NFL team is doing as we speak right now, 20 days away from the NFL draft in Nashville. What are the war rooms prepping for right now? They're doing their final meetings. They're trying to get their board 100% cleaned up. They're watching film, medical checks, character checks. They hope by five days out from the draft to have their board 100% completely done, and then they can roll into the draft just prepared for trades, prepared for what's going to happen. All right, there you have it. We're going to keep it rolling here on the GM Junior Show. We'll be back next week with our defensive line preview. We're going to keep it with the big uglies, baby, with the two best big uglies in the business right here, right now. He's Russell Landy. I'm Rick Saratella. Big time shout out to the folks over at Sports Management Worldwide. Check them out, sportsmanagementworldwide.com. Of course, nfldraftscout.com for hosting the podcast. In addition to the NFL Draft Bible publication, over 400 scouting reports, a 1,000 players ranked. Heck, we even got the top players for next year and beyond. So check that out if you're into mock drafts. We threw a seven-round mock just for good measure. Of course, we'll be back at it again next week. Thanks, as always. GM Jr. himself, Rusty Landy, RIC in the place to be. Rick Saratella, 20 days away. Keep it locked, everybody. The GM Jr. Show with Russ Landy and Rick Saratella is presented by Sports Management Worldwide, exclusively at NFLDraftScout.com.